Thank you, Hayes. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, whole team. Well, good morning again, church. I'm glad that you're here. Grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to John chapter 5. John 5 is where we're going to be today. Uh, this whole year, as we're kicking things off, we're kind of trying to get our head right. Uh, and specifically, we've been talking for the past few weeks about a season of prayer. If you've been with us these past few weeks, we've been inviting you into praying with us. And this is not something that we're just doing for a couple weeks, but really this would be kind of the undercurrent of our whole year, but that we would be living in ever-increasing prayer. Uh, And we gave you a couple options for that. You don't have to do all seven of these, but uh, we would love for you to pick at least one of these you weren't already doing. It says, hey, I really want to grow in my prayer life. And so talk to your friends about this. Get some accountability, man. Say, I really want to see what God can do in my life through prayer. You've got consistently a prayer time, prayer groups, uh, fasting, reading a book on prayer. We kicked off our prayer team this past week. We're excited about that. Intercessory prayer uh, or planning a prayer retreat of some kind. You can do any combination of these. We would love for us really to be entering into that abiding process. You do that through prayer. Uh, but even this season is a part of a larger season that we started last year. This is really kind of, kind of going through this whole season that we're in and going for a long, long time called a season of renewal. We talked a lot about this last year, but there's, there's something we're actively praying for. We're praying for a renewal of God's spirit. We want God to bring a renewal, a restoration to us. Another word you might be familiar with is revival. We're not looking for simply a short-term revival or a specific kind of day or week or a couple weeks, but a, but a deeply rooted restoration that comes from the Spirit, that a new work through the Holy Spirit might be born, not just in a few individuals, but in us collectively as a people. And so this is what we have been praying for. This is what we're going to continue to pray for. We hope you will join us in it. We all have a role to play in that. But as we continue to pray for this and push for this and ask the Lord for this, I think an important question to ask is, is do we actually want to see renewal in us? And so do we want to see renewal? Yes, you're required to say yes. You know that, right? I try to give some softballs every now and then. You just lob them up there. This is easy, right? It's like, yes, you came to church. You have to say yes to that, right? Uh, but, but let's like think this through. Like generally, of course, yes. If God's given renewal, of course, I'd be in on that. That sounds awesome. But I, I want to dig a little deeper into that. Not simply would we take renewal if it was offered, but do, are we willing to seek after renewal as the most important thing that we need? See, that's a different question. All of us would be willing to say, yes, that sounds awesome. I'd like some renewal. But do we see this renewal from the Holy Spirit as so needed, so necessary, so attractive, as so, so beautiful and necessary that I would seek after that renewal more than anything? Because if we don't, we run the risk of God answering this prayer and us actually squandering a miracle. Which there's a concept. Is it possible to squander a miracle? Is it possible for God to give us the very thing that we ask for and for us to squander it? And I think that answer has to be yes, because we see people do this all the time. You ever seen somebody squander an inheritance? You ever seen like that? Don't point, that's rude, all right? But sometimes that happens. People come into a lot of money, maybe they got an inheritance, but it doesn't actually change their life. They don't manage it well, they don't invest it well, and it, it doesn't help. They just squander it. You ever seen somebody squander their health? They drink themselves into sickness or death. They eat themselves into sickness or death. 
through a lack of discipline of any kind, they just kind of squander the good health that the Lord has given us, or maybe squander an opportunity, an opportunity for a second chance, an opportunity to, to, to have a new job or a new thing or, or whatever, and instead of grabbing that and, and putting the work in and, and seeing the fruit of that, we just squander it. It's possible to squander the good things that we are given, which means it's possible for us to squander a miracle, So in order to make sure that doesn't happen, I want to actually look at a couple passages today. And we're going to start here in John chapter 5 at one of the weirdest passages to me in all of the scriptures. Uh, There's a lot in here. So let's just go ahead and jump in. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He's done a few miracles. He has amassed his disciples already, but he finds himself in Jerusalem. So here we are, John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The scriptures tell us this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me. That man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, though, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is an odd passage. This is one of those passages that you read over and over, and it's hard to kind of get a grasp on. And there's so much more in here than we can actually tackle in one morning. But I want to make sure we kind of get the contours of this passage to really kind of see a little bit of what may be going on and what Jesus is actually doing. This passage actually may be more familiar to some of you if you're fans of the Chosen television series, which P.S., how many of you are watching that? Anybody watching the Chosen? Anybody? Yeah, yeah some of y'all. You may have heard of it. Uh, I am really late to the game when it came to the Chosen, but I started watching it this past year. It's honestly really great. It really is. Uh, I'm a fan now. It's awesome. I like what they're doing. Uh, and this past season, they actually had an episode centering on uh, the healing at this, at the Sheep Gate, at the pool. Um, but for those of you there, you need to understand it is just a TV show. Uh, and even in dealing with this incident, they often take some creative license. That's not a bad thing, by the way. They're doing it in a really good way. Um, But if you're trying to picture this, don't picture kind of what you saw in an episode. We want to let the text kind of guide us and show us what's really happening here. Uh, And so a couple different things right off the bat. First off, we say it's by the Sheep Gate. Where is this? Well, in the Temple Mount and in that area, they actually know where this is. It's a really large section. You have this these five colonnades, lots of columns uh, there, a part of that. And inside of it were two really large pools. One of them was larger than a football field. So this is not a small space. This is not an alcove stuck away on an alley somewhere. This is a massive open area 
And at this second pool, uh, you've got a lot going on because you have a lot of people around there. So you, uh, imagine just a, a really large open area, and more than that, it's crowded. We learn from the first verse that it's a feast time for the Jews. Now, a couple different times during the year, they had these massive feasts, and everybody would just converge on Jerusalem. So a place that was normally semi-crowded got really crowded. So think Times Square on New Year's Eve, or Disney anytime, you know, just really anytime, or really Disney in the summer, Disney at Christmas, like, like super packed, okay? So not just normal packed, but like crazy packed. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. So there's a ton of people there, but on top of this huge crowd, you've also got a crowd of invalids, people who are lime, uh, blind, uh, or lame, blind, they're not limes, uh, lame, blind, paralyzed. I talk a lot, people. All right, look, there's a lot of them going on, but there's a lot of these people. So at this one pool, there's a crowd of people all around this area. So packed area, Jesus shows up with his disciples. What's really interesting happens in verse four, and I'd love for you to look at that there. So check out verse four and see what the Lord does right there in your text. Everybody got it? You got verse four? You doing all right? Everybody got it? You look confused. What's wrong? Is your Bible broken? Something wrong there? Hopefully you're not finding verse four because verse four is not there, which that's really weird to go, hey, wait a minute, I know how to count. Okay, so we go three, then four, then five. We skipped verse four. How come there's no verse four? Well, it's actually down in the footnote, and you can read it there. So super tiny, get your glasses out. Uh, It actually says this. uh, They were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. All right, well, that's a little bit odd. How come we have this entire verse that's been taken out of the text and is now dumped down into the footnotes? Here's the answer. That verse is almost certainly not in the original text. That's not what John wrote. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, what's great about the book that you have in your hands is that we have a lot of ancient copies. We don't have the originals, but we have thousands of copies of these texts. Most of them are incredibly old. Some of them are just fragments. Some of them are whole pages. Some of them are whole books. We have tons of them all covering the same material. So when you look at a passage, you've got a bunch of manuscripts. They all say the same thing, except this one has a typo. This one misses a word. This one skipped a line. Remember, they're doing all this by hand. Uh, And then later on, you can actually see that this verse doesn't show up in the earliest manuscripts. It shows up way later. So what has happened? Well, if you read the text as is, it's a little bit confusing. How come all these people are surrounding this pool? And how come this guy wants to get in so bad? Well, the text doesn't tell you. So a scribe later on, trying to be helpful most likely, puts in an explanation that there was this legend that an angel came, stirred up the waters, and if you got in first, you got your thing, your disease healed. Okay, so he's trying to be helpful, and while we appreciate that, the problem is that's not text. That's not canon. That's not gospel. It wasn't in there, so we just put it in the footnote instead, which, P.S., this ought to give you great confidence about the book that you hold in your hand, that we actually take what is original very seriously. We've got a ton of manuscript evidence to give you confidence that what we are reading is what John wrote. And so that's why we don't have a verse four. But it does bring up a question, is that what was happening? Was an angel actually coming down periodically to stir up the waters and every now and then just healing somebody randomly if they won the water race to get in first? 
Almost certainly, no. This is not happening. This is an urban legend. It's a myth, and it's not occurring. We say, well, then why are all these people surrounding the pool anyway? Because they wanted some sort of hope that there was going to be a change in their situation. This is, an, this is a legend, this is an urban myth, there's no real truth to it, but they had heard rumors that some guy, some way, actually got in, and so maybe if it helped him, I never met him, but I heard from a friend of a friend that it actually worked, and so if it worked for him, maybe it'll work for me, and so I'm going to hang around and hope that this mysterious, invisible angel is going to stir up waters, and if I win the race, I get healed of my disease. Now, before you start looking down on people like that for being so simple, as to fall for something like this or to base their future on some myth like this, please understand that people through all centuries and through all ages have always fallen for things like this. If you have known anybody who has fallen for a conspiracy theory in the past two years, you're looking at somebody who would have been at this pool because that's what it is. When people fall for conspiracy theories, they go, ah, I figured it out. Don't you understand? The entire world's being run by a secret cabal of people who are actually run by aliens who live on the moon. It's true. Look it up. You found a conspiracy theorist, okay? That's not actually true. When you see people believing in cockamamie schemes of I can't understand it, it must have been a conspiracy. What you're seeing is people grappling with a dark and chaotic world. And honestly, it's scarier to recognize that things are complex and hard and difficult and sometimes don't have easy explanations. It's just easier to believe in this crazy scheme than to know that that's the world that I live in. And so we turn to them and people lap it up because they need hope. They need something to be secure because when we don't understand things and when we cannot control things, it is terrifying. So even if it's a crazy scheme, I would rather believe in that than understand the truth that things are complex and sometimes don't work out the way I want and I'm not actually in control like I think I am. And so we turn to myths, conspiracy theories, and that's what's going on here. The biggest evidence that that's not really happening is the fact that Jesus completely dismisses it. He doesn't say anything about it. He ignores the pool. He doesn't help him get into the pool. He doesn't talk about the pool. He doesn't care about the pool because the pool doesn't matter. Jesus completely and totally ignores it. But things get weirder from here. Let's note something interesting about this man. This man has no faith. Did you catch that? He doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't even know who he is. Jesus heals him. He doesn't even know his name. Typically, we see people coming to Jesus to be healed. You often read this in the text. Your faith has made you well. This guy has no faith. He didn't come to find Jesus. Jesus found him. And when Jesus heals him, this man has said nothing that indicates that he has put his faith in Jesus. Jesus just heals him. This is total gift. It's complete and total gift. Why in the world would Jesus do that? It gets weirder. Why does Jesus only heal this one guy? Because remember the context. There's tons of invalids here. Lame, blind, paralyzed. There's tons of sick people. Jesus picks through a lot of people who are hurting, finds one guy, heals them, and then leaves without healing anybody else. Is that weird to anybody else? It's odd. It is to me too. (laughs) Why would he do that? I don't understand because we know that Jesus is compassionate, so why would he leave people there? We, we have to really dig through. I think at the very least, what we can recognize is that apparently for Jesus, something is more important than physical healing for these people. And that thought 
may dis- be discomforting for you. But sit on it for a second. Put a pen in it. Think about it. There apparently is something even more important than physical healing for Jesus in this text. All right, but this man has no faith. Jesus only heals one of them. And then the guy doesn't seem very grateful, does he? He doesn't seem to be very grateful to be healed from a 38-year malady. When Jesus heals him, he doesn't stick around to find out who Jesus is. He doesn't go track Jesus down. When he's confronted, he immediately rats Jesus out. Oh, it's not my fault. It's that guy who healed me. Go get him. And then he doesn't look for Jesus. Jesus has to find him again. When Jesus talks to him, he doesn't express any faith in Jesus. Instead, what he does is immediately go rat Jesus out a second time. He goes and finds the authorities. Hey, hey, it was Jesus. That was the guy. Go get him. He not only doesn't have any faith, he doesn't seem very grateful for what Jesus has done. And then the Pharisees just take the cake, do they not? Because the only thing they care about is that he did it on a Saturday, the Sabbath. They hear about an amazing miracle. He goes, he did it when? Saturday. I can't believe this guy. Can you imagine him doing a supernatural life-altering miracle on a Saturday? Who is this person? We must find him. How dare anybody do anything on a Saturday? They have missed the point that a life-altering, supernatural miracle has been done in their midst. Something they could never do. Do not care. They only care it's been done on a Saturday. They have completely missed the point. These people are squandering a miracle. But to me, the weirdest part that takes the cake is the question that Jesus asks. Look back to what he says to this man in verse six. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Has anybody ever asked you a dumb question before? How do you look at people when people ask you dumb questions? I have a problem with this. My wife is working with me. Listen, because I, I, I don't do well controlling my face if you ask me a dumb question, right? I can imagine this guy just kind of blinking at Jesus, just, are you kidding? Look around. Do I want to be healed? I'm crippled. Of course I want to be healed. Look where I am. I'm trying to get in this pool. I keep humiliating myself, trying to get into the pool, and it never works, and I keep trying. Of course I want to be healed. He doesn't know who this guy is. He's a stranger who walked up to him and said, do you want to be healed? Which begs a very honest question, so why did Jesus ask it? We have a couple options. A, is Jesus a moron? Option A, I think we can safely assume that Jesus is not a moron. Can we all agree on that? I think we can agree on that. Second option, is Jesus messing with him? You want to get healed? Anybody? You really want to get healed? Huh? Huh? Is he just making fun of him? Is he taunting him? I think we can safely assume that Jesus is not taunting this man. He has compassion for the hurting. So he's not making fun of him. So then why ask? Jesus already knows he's been there. This is an obvious answer. So then why ask at all? He knows everything. So why did he ask it? Maybe Jesus is trying to point out to him something that this man doesn't see. Maybe he's trying to draw out something in this man that Jesus knows. But this man thinks he knows, but but doesn't actually understand yet. Because two things we come to find out in this man's answers. First off, he's only thinking about himself. This man can only think about himself. When he comes to his answer, his answer is only in terms of himself. His world has been shrunk down to only him. What does he say in response? 
I can't get in the pool in time. I keep trying to get in the pool. I can't get into the pool. I don't have any friends to take me into the pool. Of course I want to get healed. I'm trying to get healed, but I can't actually make it happen. I don't have the ability. I don't have any friends. I can't get into the pool. Everything is really around him. In his mind, there is no God. God isn't going to help him. Friends aren't going to help him. Nobody can help him. It's all up to him. He's the only one he can rely on and he can't actually fix it, which leaves him in his stuck position. But in his mind, there is only him. No one else can help him. So if he's going to fix it, he's got to fix it himself. Now, there are some of us who might actually admire that. We are Americans. We put a lot of pride into personal responsibility. We value that. We encourage it. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Do things together. You got a problem? Fix it. Get creative. Do something. Take care of yourself. You don't have to take a handout. Do something on your own. You can do these things. We actually encourage personal responsibility. That whole idea of the Protestant work ethic comes out of this idea. You should own what you're doing with personal responsibility. But for this man, he's taken that to such an extreme that there is nothing else. He's the only one who can give him help. But here's the bigger problem. He doesn't see the bigger picture. He's not actually seeing his real problem. Now, let's let that hang for a moment because that could sound offensive. When talking to somebody who's been struggling with an illness for 38 years, to say that they don't actually understand their own problems, who in the world are we to say such a thing? Who in the world is anybody to look at somebody struggling and suffering like that and say, I don't know if you fully understand what you're really dealing with, certainly not coming from a stranger. Well, then how do we know that's what Jesus is saying? Skip down to verse 14 and look at what he says. It says, and afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Worse. Worse than 38 years of being an invalid? Worse than 38 years of dashed dreams and hopes? Worse than 38 years of crushed expectations and humiliation? What could possibly be worse than that? Look, I don't know if anybody else is dealing with that, but I've had almost four decades of pain, four decades of not being able to do what everybody else does, four decades of being stuck like this with nobody helping. What could possibly be worse? And Jesus says there's something worse. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, we're just going to table for the moment the entire concept of does sin cause sickness? That's a whole other sermon. I don't have a time for that. The short answer is sometimes. Ask me later. All right, look, whole different concept. But Jesus brings up the concept of sin because, you see, Jesus understands there is actually something worse. Here's what's worse. If I heal you, but you don't have a relationship with me, you live in eternity for, in hell for all time. If I don't take care of your sin, you never understand the purpose of your existence. If I don't take care of your sin, you never have a relationship with me. You never know the love that you were made for. You don't get to abide in me like we sang earlier. You don't have any sort of future or a hope. If I give you everything this world has to offer, but I don't take care of your sin, you ultimately find yourself not simply separated from God, but being literally decaying into an abomination by the sin that will hold you in slavery and ultimately destroy you. 
That's worse than what you've been going through. And so for Jesus, he says, listen, I understand your circumstance. I understand your predicament. I have compassion for your situation, but I am thinking about something greater. What I need to do is to give you everlasting life and you need that more than you even need the healing you've been asking for. Do you see the bigger picture? Because this is hard for us. We almost always see our present circumstance, our present problem as the most important thing. Deal with that, and then we can talk about the Lord. Then we can talk about heal, healing or, or, or righteousness or, or prayer or whatever. But you've got to deal with my problem first. But with Jesus, it's always the opposite. Do you remember Matthew 9 with the story of the paralytic lower down through the roof? Remember that one? There's a story early on where Jesus is teaching in a house, and there's a different paralytic, but he's got buddies, and they want to get him to Jesus, can't get him in. So they climb up on the roof, open up the, a hole in the roof. I'm sure the owner was happy about that. And then they just like lower the guy down. You know, they're just super excited about this. They've done a holding MacGyver thing and they're kind of lowering him down and they're all excited about it. And then, so they lower him down and Jesus looks up, see four guys going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus looks at this paralytic lying on a mat in front of him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, how would you respond to that? How do you think they did? Thanks. Can we get to the healing now? Why did we bring our paralytic buddy to you? Why did we open up a hole in the roof? Why did we lay him down? Listen, forgiveness, that's great. We'll talk about that later. But what we came for was the healing. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, he'll ultimately heal the guy, but only to prove that he has the power and authority to forgive sins. Because the greater need in this man's life was not his physical healing, is for the salvation of his soul. Jesus saw something different. But how many times do we fall for that? To where we say, no, listen, if God's offering forgiveness, that's great and awesome, I'll take it. That's great. If renewal is out there, that's great. I'll take it. I just have some other things I would really like God to deal with first. And something else becomes more important. Something else is most important. Look, we're all dealing with this right now. A couple years ago, we all went through a collective experience. The entire country stopped. We put a stop on America and everything paused. For three months, we didn't come to church. We didn't do anything. We didn't go to our jobs. We didn't do anything. And then we started coming back. And we kind of restarted things. And we've been kind of in a process of restarting. And look, we're almost there. You can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Fits and starts, but we're getting there. We're, we're getting that back. But when things became back online, they didn't come back the same, now did they? There's a bunch of people who used to come to church who don't come to church anymore. There's people who used to come faithful who only come sporadically now. And there's people who are gone and they'll never come back. But that's not just happening in our church and all the other churches in America. There's also the great resignation going on. A ton of people quit. They reevaluated their life and said, I don't want to do this job anymore. I don't want to do it the way I've been doing it anymore. So I want to work at home instead of working here. And so people have been changing. Job places have been changing. People moved. People changed careers. There have been a ton of different changes. We're all trying to figure out, okay, so what is my life going to look like? And right now, we're all building new patterns. Right now, we're all building new ideas. What is our life going to be like? We will base our actions on our priorities whatever is most important to us. And so now we come back to the question, do we actually want a season of renewal? Well, of course, if God's gonna offer that, I would take it. But the real question is, do we believe that that's what we need more than anything? Or do we say, that would be great, 
but listen, let me kind of get my job situation figured out, and then after that, we can talk about church attendance. Listen, that sounds awesome. Renewal sounds great. Let me fix some things over here with my marriage, and then we'll talk about my prayer life. I I just got to get that fixed first, and then maybe we'll talk about my prayer life. Hey, let me get rested for a while, and then we'll talk about being invested in, in a congregation. I just need to get some things done. I need to spend some time with my family. I need to do some things on my own. And once I have enough of that and I feel like I've got a better rhythm, well, then I, maybe I can add in really interacting with the people of God in a more uh, systemic fashion. Hey, hey let, me, let me fix this financial issue in my life and then maybe we'll, we'll talk to the Lord uh, about giving or something like that. Do you, do you see how we tackle it? The Lord's in the mix, but there's always something that we say is most important, more important. I'll take it if the Lord's offering healing. I mean, that sounds awesome. But what I really need is this over here, not recognizing that even if God gives us everything we have asked for, if we miss out on him, we have lost everything. There's quite literally nothing in our future if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul. And so the question for us is, is do we actually want it? This man gets a miracle from Jesus and it doesn't seem to change him all that much. The Pharisees see a miracle of Jesus and it doesn't actually change him all that much. Do we actually want this or not? That's the question. But I want to show you one more passage. But before we go, I want to think about one more detail before we get out of here. Who is with Jesus when all this is happening? Remember, we're in this big portico. All this is going on. Jesus heals this guy. Who else is there? We don't know for sure. I think we're going to say that John was there because this is John's gospel. So more than likely, John himself was there. And I think we could probably assume that the rest of the disciples were too. Peter and the rest of the guys, big crowd, crowded place. You can assume the rest of them are there. But at least John and probably Peter are with them. So now let's click over to Acts chapter three. One book over to the right, Acts chapter three. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. You wanna go to Acts chapter three. Now, while you are flipping pages, things are happening. Jesus will come back to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. He will die on the cross for our sins. He will then rise from the grave. He is resurrected three days later. He appears to his apostles and then he will ascend back into heaven. The apostles wait there in Jerusalem and a couple weeks later, God sends his Holy Spirit. So now the spirit of Jesus is now going to indwell all of his believers They will then go and preach the gospel. 3,000 people will come to faith in one day. The church will be born. That has happened just a couple weeks ago. All right, so from where we are now, that just happened a few weeks ago. You've got 3,000 people, and that number is growing every day, of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Look what happens in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up, he um, he stood and began to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. 
And all the people who saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, who you now see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, which is Jesus. Let's stop right there. Here, a little while later, we find yet another unnamed beggar. Peter and John are coming to the temple. They come to a different gate. We're at the sheep pool. Now we're at the beautiful gate. These would have been massive bronze gates. And at three in the afternoon, the people would all come to pray. It was the hour of prayer. And so this beggar would come. He knew all the church people were coming, so they would probably give you money. And so he would come and sit at the door to get alms. He's apparently been there for a while because everybody recognized him. And so he would come, and in comes Peter and John. And when they get there... Peter sees this man and says, I don't have any silver and gold, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Again, this man has no faith. He has not expressed faith in Jesus. He does not maybe know who Jesus is. He did not ask for a healing in the name of Jesus. He was just sitting there. He was expecting alms, and what he got was a full healing in the name of Jesus Christ. But what is different in this passage is that this miracle is going to go on to engender more miracles. If you go on into chapter 4, what you'll find out is that the number of people who are Christians grew from about 3,000 to close to 5,000. So what has happened here is that when people see this miracle, when they hear the name of Jesus, this one man is healed physically, but close to 2,000 people are going to be healed spiritually. 2,000 people are going to go from death to life. 2,000 people are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ and experience that love, that grace, that forgiveness to have the eternal life both now and hereafter. This one miracle has engendered more miracles. Why? Because the focus goes back on the Lord. Look at how Peter reacts differently than the original beggar. First off, what does the Peter do? Peter is always pointing to Jesus and not to himself. Peter is pointing to Jesus and not to himself. Look at verse 12. Notice what he says there. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as if by our own power or piety, we made him walk? Peter says, please do not think that we have the power to do this. Please do not think that we and ourselves have the power to heal people. Peter does not have the gift of healing. He was granted a gift of healings. 
Nobody ever gets a gift of healing where you can just heal people carte blanche. Jesus could, but he doesn't act that way. None of the apostles do this. Nobody gets to do this. Anybody who claims that is seriously wrong. No one gets a carte blanche gift of healing, but God does give gifts of healings. He heals people sporadically and in different spots. Peter says, it's not by my power. This was God doing this through us, but we didn't do this. Furthermore, it's not by our piety. It's not because we're so good. It's not because we've gone to church longer than you. It's not because we didn't sin where you did and we didn't. It's not because we've prayed more than you did. It's not because of our piety as if we have earned the right to heal people. We have earned the right to do these things. It's not by our own piety or our own goodness that this has happened. This has only come through the faith in Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 16 and look at what it says. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, who you now see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health. It comes through him. This power to to transform and to heal, it comes in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. For Peter, his life is not all about himself. It's not all about what he can do or what he can accomplish. You see, he has been shifted out of the center of his life. Now, instead of the world orbiting around him, he has shifted and now he orbits around the Lord. The Lord is the center. Jesus is most important. Life in him is most important. And now Peter is simply pointing towards him. He's not trying to get everything for himself. He's pointing back towards Jesus Christ. It's not about Peter. It's about the Lord. But also, Peter points to the real problem. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Peter understands the real issue. The real issue for the Jews is not the Romans. The real issue is not simply physical ailments. The real issue is not problems in our culture. The real issue is our brokenness and sin. And if that isn't fixed, there is no hope. But praise be to God, there is hope. Because when Jesus Christ came, he came to take away our sins. We know that this is the issue because if that were not important, Jesus would not have come and given his very life to save us from it. He would have solved cultural issues. He would have solved practical issues. He would have solved medical issues. But instead, Jesus Christ comes and says, no, I'm gonna give my life to save you from your sins. Why? Because that's the real problem that we're all dealing with. And if we don't deal with that, it does not matter how many issues we solve, how many good things we get, how many blessings we enjoy. If we don't have our sin atoned for, we will not find ourselves in a relationship with the Lord. We will not have eternal life. Peter sees the bigger problem and he points us to it. He says, repent therefore and turn back. Why? Look at verse 19 or verse 20 and look what he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, this word refreshing is weird. It's incredibly rare. It only shows up in one other place in the Bible, and it's in a translation of the Old Testament. Literally, what it means uh, is is to be cooled off by a breeze on a hot day. So imagine deep summer in Alabama, and an unexpected cool breeze just kind of rushes over you and you get that, oh, feeling. That's refreshing. That times of refreshing may come to us. Well, what's he referring to there? Well, he's probably talking about the end times where God brings in the full reign of the Messiah, but he also talks about the presence of the Lord. 
Well, that starts now. I get the presence of the Lord now. He indwells me now. He is with me now. He's the Emmanuel, which means I can have a time of refreshing now. So these words, refreshing, restoration, renewal, revival, these become synonyms that times of renewal might come to us, that times of revival might come to us. Repent, therefore, turn back. Why? That times of refreshing and renewal might come to us. This is what God is offering to us. I'll say it again. Do we want it? Do we crave it? Not simply as something that would be great to have if God offers it, but I have other things I would prefer more. Or do we recognize that we need that renewal, that restoration, that refreshing more than anything else? And even if I got all the other things I prayed for, all the other issues that plague us, I still wouldn't have eternal life until I put my faith in Jesus. I repent of my sins. I recognize I'm not the center of my universe. Life is found in Christ and Christ alone. This so transformed Peter He literally lives and gives his life to tell people the gospel. It's going to transform the life of this beggar, but that leads to transform lives for thousands of people who then go on to share the gospel as well. You see, when you and I live in this time of refreshing, God doesn't just bless us. It overflows into everyone else and our neighbors and our families and our area when we crave after that renewal more than anything else. Do we actually want renewal? So do this for a moment. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Let's just think about that. And look, I hope you hear my heart and our heart today. I don't think Jesus or anybody else will want to minimize the very real problems that you and I deal with medical issues, family issues, personal issues. These are very real problems that cause very real pain and Jesus has incredible compassion on all of them. And yes, there are times where God brings solutions to all of these. But we can't get our priorities out of order. As much as God cares about those issues, there's one issue he cares about more than anything is that you may know him. And have eternal life in him. And that can't happen until we repent. Until we turn away from a life that's really have us us at the center. Where we decide what's most important and we give God whatever we like. But instead we recognize there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. But praise be to God that this same Savior who we turned away from still loves us. And forgives us. He made us, he cherishes us, he seeks after us. He literally, before we were even born, gave his life for us. Then he sent his spirit after us to call us and woo us and draw us, to speak to us. And even after we become believers and we we sometimes stray, the Lord doesn't give up on us, but he draws and consoles and pulls that maybe in the same way that he pulls us, we would also grasp for him. I wonder if today we need to to really search our hearts and say, do I truly want renewal? Instead of just being willing to take it. Do we truly want to see a movement of the Holy Spirit? Do we truly want to see transformation? Because that's what he wants. 
I think he's just wondering if we're gonna squander it or not. Maybe today we need to shift up some of those priorities. I say, no, I need, I need you more than anything. I, I need you more than anything. You can help me with these issues, but I need you more than anything. Maybe today we need to repent of things we've chosen, places we've been distracted. I say, Jesus, I can't fix myself, but you can. Would you help me? So just a moment, I'm gonna pray for us and when these altars are gonna be open, maybe you wanna come and pray. Maybe you just wanna lift up that cry to say, God, bring revival to us. Maybe you wanna pray with me, I'll be right here up front. But let's choose today with all of our hearts to ask Jesus to bring that time of refreshing to us. So Father, help us. <laughs> God, I'm so sorry. We're like ping pong balls. We just... We just run from place to place, back and forth, never resting, always so frenetic, and, and yet, Father, sometimes missing the whole point. And so, Lord, would you bring true renewal to us, not what we want, but what you want. So, Father, draw us together, fan into flame, just that desire for you. For those of us who feel that flickering, Father, would you just fan it into flame? For those of us who feel distant or, or removed from you, fan that into flame, stoke that fire, Lord, that we together as your people would choose you and long for you and your renewal more than anything else. We love you, Lord. Help us. We need you. In your name we pray.